Hey, Joe. Hey. No vehicles in the park. So great. No vehicles in the park. Oh. Couldn't be more clear, could it? Gonna land my plane in that park and get a <laughs> ticket. <laughs> Isn't a plane a vehicle? Hmm. Is it? I don't know. It seems like it. It's definitely a vehicle. Okay. I mean, they called so the... So I shouldn't land my plane in that park. That They called the Apollo modules vehicles. So I shouldn't land the Apollo in the park. Boy, that'd be cool, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that park is going to have one big burn mark on it. <laughs> Can you ride your bike in the park? Uh, mm, how about a skateboard? Mm. Roller skates. What if you collapse in the park? You're not planning to collapse, are you, Joe? What if I just want to walk into the park with my infant in a baby stroller? Do you have an infant? I do not. Oh, okay. Uh, Boy, my I notional ex- infant. I got excited there for a my minute. imaginary. I thought, there's, oh, thought there was an announcement. You ought to feel nothing but sympathy <laughs> for that poor child. Um, <laughs> so, do I get to walk into the park with an infant in a stroller? Well, I was going to. Or is that a vehicle? I was going to ask, and therefore prohibited. Whether you, if you collapsed, and God forbid, Joe, I don't want you to collapse in the park. But I if this happened, know. I would want, I would want to save you. You would want emergency medical services to enter the park and assist me. But they can they. Can know. an ambulance come in the park? It says no vehicles. Maybe they can come in the park, but they have to pay a fine. Now, there's a bunch of different ways to think about how to answer these questions. Uh, some of the ways to answer it relate to concepts exterior to the meaning of the sentence, no vehicles in the park. Okay, what do you mean by that? So, so it could be that the way to answer it is, no matter what that sentence means, there are... Uh, exigencies that were emergencies. You just mentioned emergency medical services, right? There are emergencies that will um, cause us to basically ignore those rules. Emergencies call for different rules and standards, different approaches. So it didn't really matter whether or not um, had I been an EMS worker driving an ambulance to get to work one day, right? And had driven through the park. Even if that would be prohibited, Entering the park in an emergency, it just isn't, it's not a question answered by that sentence. So this is like a bunch of people park. getting together and saying, we've got some rules for all kinds of reasons that govern our cooperation here around the park or wherever else, or right. maybe they're even family rules. But we know that our ability to make rules and predict the future is, is limited because as we said last time, like we are people and, and not gods, right? And so implicit in this whole enterprise is this idea that all rules are defeasible, meaning that every rule can will yield to more important considerations, the more important principles that underlie everything that we do. And when that happens, you're not really interpreting the rule in any traditional sense of the word interpret. You're interpreting a more basic rule about your cooperation, which may have gone nowhere stated. Right. Right. Now, that, that, so th- in that sense, maybe there's always an interpretation which is occurring. <laughs> Right. In, in fact, I mean, this is like we're not okay. going to get all the way to there's heart's always, theory. There's but always this a is... context uh, question. Is this the context in which I should be interpreting the rule or is this a context in which I should be paying attention to some other more important principle or, that overrides rule. the rule yeah. in this context? Yeah. Or some more important rule, which is nowhere stated. Yeah. Um, so I was just trying to point out that if we're if, if the topic of our conversation is interpretation, right? yeah. sometimes what you really are doing is trying to figure out what what the referent of the word vehicle is. Yeah, and can you elaborate? What do you mean by that? Well, the prohibition is on vehicles in the park, no vehicles in the park. So I'm not supposed to enter the park or bring into the park a thing that is a vehicle. 
some questions will be edge cases for whether something is or isn't a vehicle. And the students already saw this in the Oren Kerr discussion about uh, writing good exam answers, mm-hmm. right? That was a no vehicles in the park series of scenarios. Right. If and this, they, this didn't originate with him, but you know, no. this is a very famous example, which a lot of people have used. Right. Um, and it, and it is highly generative, this example, that's why people yeah. keep using it. Um, and, uh, lots of great pieces written of varying analyses and hypotheticals on vehicles in the park. Um, so, so sometimes you'll be asking, okay, if I ride into the park on my skateboard, am I doing the thing? Am I doing a thing that this prohibition was meant to prevent or stop? Right. And prior conversation last time, lots of people are going to have to interpret that rule. Pol- the police officers who were writing tickets. The person who's going to skateboard in. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the town council, which is trying to figure out um, how to pay for maintenance in the park, right? Their, their understanding of that is going to turn in part on what they think is going on in that park. But when we talk about statutory interpretation and we engage in what I always encourage the students to engage in, which is kind of role modeling, uh, no, role playing. Yeah. <laughs> Ask yourself about being a particular decisional person. Yeah. Imagine you're the police officer. Imagine you're the judge yeah. who's adjudicating a ticket. Because it helps you feel the kinds of considerations which will bear on your decision, right? So yeah. the, the typical role that people will play is is that of the judge. And imagine there's a kid who's come in who's been charged with riding, yeah. you know, her skateboard in the park. Or there's, got a ticket. Right. And and now you have to interpret this. Like, so there you, you have the rule which says no vehicles in the park, you've got the kid and she's ridden her skateboard through the park. Like, what do you do? Right. That's the question. Like what, you know, you got to do something. You got to write some words on a page that other people will then read and then use to, you know, put the kid in jail or to find the kid or to let the kid go or other people will act on that. But you've got to write some words on a page justifying what you anticipate will be that future action of enforcement. So how do you do that? How do you do the thing which connects this very parsimonious rule, no vehicles in the park, with that future action. And, you know, historically, there have been a lot of different forms of statutory interpretation. There's the so-called mischief rule, which is you should interpret it to get at the mischief at which the, the rule makers were aiming. Uh, the literal rule, which you, you know, basically just look at the text. And then there's the golden rule, which does some other things. But these days, I think the most common breakdown is textualism, intentionalism, and purposivism. I would say, I don't know about these days, because these days we've kind of even moved beyond that, as we can talk about when we talk about Sunstein's paper. But textualism says that the meaning of a rule, or the meaning of some statute, the meaning of whatever legal authority you look at, should be derived from the text of that thing. Just look at the text, a contract even, right? Just look at the text of the contract. And from there, you derive the meaning, which I guess means like, this is where I, you know, when, when I teach students about this in, in legal theory and in legislation and regulation, the whole aim is to, is to get at the fact that when people disagree about these things, it's usually because they disagree about what the word mean means, <laughs> right? It's yeah, a disagreement about meaning. I've already got problems. Um, so well, I, no, I'm, I'm just laying out the common trope of textualism, intentionalism, and purposivism, uh, right? I've got problems um, <laughs> because I don't know. Is that really what textualists would say? Look only at the text? Uh, well, they say that the meaning can be derived from the text, right? And so you have Doesn't to take everyone it, you know, think the meaning can be derived at least a little bit from no, the text. No, because you might, you might take, really, you might take the meaning as not coming from the text itself. In other words, we have to de- deploy, deploy some kind of method 
to, to extract meaning from the text. Instead, you might say that the text is just evidence about what the rule is. Okay, because so you the, are deriving it because, in part from the text. You're using it as evidence. You're using it as evidence, but you might use other evidence as well. So sure. if you're an intentionalist, right, you might say what matters is the intention of the rule promulgator. There isn't anyone who doesn't rely on the text. Uh, well. Uh, to, they rely on it for different things. They rely on it to different degrees. Right. There isn't anyone who doesn't think the text is an important determinant of the meaning of the rule. Uh, yeah, probably. So I, so I just don't probably, see the percentage. You're, you're, saying, you're saying you're saying all, and 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 in the American legal regime, I think that that's true. It, it's not it's not a necessary feature of of rules that you would uh, always look at it. I'm not sure that that's implicit in the very idea of interpretation, but um, it, it might be. But we we don't need to go there, right? We don't need to go there. The point is that textualists say that the meaning is uh, is conveyed by the text. And our methods are aimed at kind of wringing out meaning from the text itself, the words, you're using dictionaries, other things to translate meaning, objective meaning. The intentionalist would say that what matters is Congress's intent in passing the act. The text of the statute that it passed is evidence of that intention, but so too might be speeches made from the floor of the Senate or the House or Congressional Committee evidence or evidence about like what was on the news that they were watching at the time. All of these things can feed into what you think their intention was. And so, you right. know, you read the text and it says, uh, well, are we going to go back to our ridiculous example about going to the, buy cheese for the party? No. <laughs> we're not going to do that? No, we don't. Well, we, we can if you want. I mean, because an intentionalist would, would maybe say, look, if they had a bunch of parties in Congress and they were always, you know, and they always had cheddar cheese and they never had cottage cheese, that would be some evidence that when they wrote cheese, they intended, that would be some evidence. It's not conclusive by any right. stretch, right? Right. Whereas the textualist would say it's irrelevant what they did, right? It's irrelevant, you know, what they said at the committee hearing about blah, blah, blah. All that matters is this, is this text. And we don't look at what their, we're not as concerned with what their intention was, right? Because their intention is no more important than anyone else's intention for extracting meaning purely from the text. Now, I think you're fighting, you're shaking your head. I'm, I'm trying to lay it out. You are, you're pushing back against the idea of textualism, I think. Okay, but that, put that aside. There's also purposivism. And purposivism says that we're not as concerned with what the, what the intention of the legislators was with respect to particular words. In other words, you know, when you look at the text, it's not necessarily what they meant by those words. Rather, what we're generally, what we generally want to know is we want to take this statute and that particular moment in time and figure out like, why did they do this? Like what, what was the general aim here? And we'll take that general aim and we'll figure out how to translate that to our current social problems. Okay. We might even take a more kind of smeared out version through time and say, okay, we've got this bit of statutory text. What purpose has this come to serve in society and how should we apply it? Okay, that's textualism, intentionalism, and purposivism in general, but I think the ambiguities here should be pretty obvious, right? that we can consider meaning at particular points in time, right? So for each of those, we could say what matters is the text at the moment of enactment, the intention at the moment of enactment, or the purpose at the moment of enactment. Or we might take a more contemporary meaning. What does the text come to mean now? Like if people looked at this now in some isolation room without evidence of anything that happened in Congress and they said, what does this mean for this case? What would they say? Uh, we might look at the intentions of the legislators now. This has actually come up. The court at various times has said this is not relevant, but 
but it could be. And that's, um, you know, Congress passed this statute uh, in 1950. We We adjudicated a bunch of cases. They amended the statute in 1970, but they didn't touch that part of the statute that we interpreted. And so that shows some intention to ratify the meanings that we gave it. Well, that that shows that what we care about is the intention of Congress generally as an institution rather than just the enacting Congress. Mm. So we might take that view that that we might be intentionalists, but we could be intentionalists either as an original matter or an, or kind of as an, an, as an institutional matter or in some other in some other way. So to purpose and and text. Okay, so so there's not just textualism, intentionalism, purposivism. There is like original textualism, original intentionalism, original purposivism, and then there is like contemporary textualism. Content. So there are multiple variables here. You're seeing. Are you seeing the two by two and three by three boxes in your head, Joe? Yes. Okay. So there's all that stuff, right? And and then is another matter. You might say. Suppose I'm a textualist, and I think what matters is what this, what the words of the statute mean. I don't care about what they intended. What, like if, if we found if we found out tomorrow, through some new evidence, that this statute about say new and stationary sources, which we thought there was no congressional, we we thought there was nothing in the congressional record evidencing what they, whether they thought this bubble concept should apply or not, the one in Chevron. But then tomorrow we find in the archive that there was this whole thing where every single member of Congress had given his or her uh, had given his or her opinion on what it meant, and it was all pointed one way. Would that change our view? The textualist would say that it shouldn't change our view about this. But what should their view be? Like, how do you read those words in isolation? And there's another variable here. Do you just ask like a member of the general public? Read these words. What do you think? Like, what are you talking about? What are bubbles? What, what What's the stationary source? Is it just experts? Is it just people familiar with pollution? Like, so text has different meanings depending on the set of understandings that you bring to it, right? So to interpreting intentions and interpreting purposes, right? So all of these, we might ask what like lay readers or lay readers of the situation would say, like members of the general public, or we might ask what people who are specialists in the field being regulated would ask. So Mm -hmm. that's another dimension of, of the problem. So these are all problems in, in, in deciding what a piece of legislation means. And we can have very different theories about which of these is correct, you know, which of these to do and how do we do it? All right. So I've laid out the, the, the field here and you, you, you're smiling. Why are you smiling? (laughs) Uh, This is a very difficult conversation to have. Why is that? Because it's, um, it's, it's very hard to have it in a, in a context that isn't, um, where you don't take a whole lot of legal experience for granted. Mm-hmm. which is the conversation we're trying to have. Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. I agree. So, so you, okay. So you say we laid it out. What next? What's next? <laughs> you didn't want to stop there. I wanted to, I wanted to figure out like what, what's, what's bothering you about that. <laughs> I think this is an instance where the effort to put things into some different groups a textual approach, an intentional approach, a purposive approach, um, may overstate the degree to which the things are really separate. Yeah. It may also understate the degree to which it's particular things that people are concerned about. So what seems to have, my perception, for example, what seems to have driven lots of 
uh, people who in the statutory interpretation context refer to themselves as textualists. Mm -hmm. A big part of what seemed to be driving them is a real distaste for reliance on legislative history. Right. So it's it's really they're not they're every bit as much in fact maybe even more anti-legislative historyists as they are textualists. Right. And, and well, you, if you really yeah. talked about what's motive what's what do they seem to care about um in the debate you you wouldn't actually refer to it as textualism. Because you think it, it, at least for some of those people, it might matter if we knew that the legislation was crafted in response to some national crisis. Like, like that, those are data they might take on board. Yes. And, and I think that because they say things like that, when you ask them to elaborate on what that, and so there's a the way problem is the word which, they there, obviously, right? I mean, this is, yeah. And it is also, um, it's, it's pro- I think it's also problematic that, that the, the very label textualist um, is, is sort of implicitly, which is what kind of set me off at the beginning. I know it does. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm is, trying to give, I'm trying to give the, the just the neutral is, explanation of the, is, of the well, terms in the one, field, right? of the, the terms in the field. We can criticize them later. there isn't that either because okay. the terms themselves are neutral. The term textualism is, in a, is a suggestion that other people don't think text is important. That is a straw man. Yeah. Uh, because there isn't anyone who thinks that. Period. Full stop. <laughs> in, in the context of American law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Or, or put slightly differently, there isn't anyone who could get confirmed to be a judge who in their testimony at their hearing said, eh, text, schmext. I don't care what the words say. I do what I want. Um, now, there are interesting people who say things kind of close to that who have been judges for a long time. Mm-hmm. Different different matter. Um, but uh, I, But I just don't think anyone believes text is important, which, which raises the question, what work is the label textualism doing? Well, so I, I think that, you know, if you look at some Supreme Court cases, and, well, we didn't have, we, we don't have time to cover a bunch of Supreme Court cases illustrating this, but let me just say, let me take it as, as read for a second, that there is kind of a Supreme Court ecumenical approach to statutory interpretation because they all have slightly different views of, of, of how to interpret statutes and, and some of them are emerging and, and are continuing to develop. Others seem to be wedded to particular approaches where they say, of course we start with the text. Like you see many, many cases where we say anytime we interpret a statute, we begin with the text, right? And some of them will say, and we end with the text, right? But, but they'll at least say we, we start with the text and then they'll oftentimes cite dictionaries just to figure out whether there is a, whether there is one meaning that everybody agrees to. But when you read these opinions, what you see is a more of a kind of collaborative effort to foster consensus, despite the fact that they, they're, as a group, they are under-theorized, meaning that they don't have one theory to which they all agree. But maybe even though you and I, maybe if, maybe if I were a strict textualist, I'll use that word just to set you off here, Joe, and you are a purposivist, and so there are many potential disagreements we could have about the meaning of statutes. But if one came before us that said, no vehicles in the park, and someone had been arrested on a, uh, on a Saturday for driving a race car up and down the sidewalks of the park, throughout the park, like the question of whether they are guilty of violating the no vehicles in the park rule depends on our interpretation of no vehicles in the park. It depends on the meaning that we give that phrase. Mm -hmm. And I might interpret that in some cases differently than you would. In other words, our applications would differ 
right. in certain hard cases. But we this is not a hard on case. The skateboard, but right. We might all agree on the racing car. And our, the, and our opinion might start, might start uh, something like, you know, there is a rule, no vehicles in the park. And of course, to interpret this rule, we begin with the text. The race car here, of course, is a vehicle because vehicle has this definition. We might look up a dictionary and might say, or we might even say, as everyone knows, a race car is a vehicle. And it was being driven in the park because it was within the boundaries of the park. Right. Uh, and we may say no more than that. And that is an opinion which looks very much like it only depends on the text. But that's because all of these other considerations that might otherwise lead us to conclude, well, this is an exception or they didn't really mean this or they didn't really mean that are just not raised by this case. And so our opinion can look as though you and I are uniform in our interpretation of that. Right. But that's because that it wasn't, it, our disagreements were not raised by the case. And that case is so straightforward that, that one might question why a person who fought that ticket was in court to fight the ticket at all, right? It, it is so one-sided um, <laughs> that you might ask a question like, why are you here? Was there really nothing better for you to do with your time? Uh, because you're going to, this ticket's going to stand and everyone knows that. Um, because whereas, you're saying it's an easy case. It's an easy case. Correct. And, whereas but, the skateboard case is is um, more challenging, I think, uh, on anyone's theory about how to interpret statutes. And so it raises the question, and I think this is often a very good question to ask in, in, an, in the context of thinking about how interpretation works and should work, is what makes some interpretive uh, tasks harder than others? Mm -hmm. and, and even in a given case, what makes this case hard? What is it about the, the thing that looks like it's packaged as an interpretive disagreement? What makes this a hard interpretive task? Well, wh why don't we start? Because I, I think I want to get to the Posner-Scalia debate here today. And I think we should start with Scalia's defense of, of what he calls textualism. I don't, want I don't want to set you off here, Joe. I don't want to trigger you. <laughs> But 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 it, you 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 do admit that there is that label applied to what Scalia describes here. There there are people who use that word. Okay. Uh, and Scalia is kind of defending what looks kind of like a dumb dumb textualism approach, right? It's like you know, let's not be so smart. Let's just use dictionaries and figure out what these words mean. And and but he's giving a I think very sophisticated justification. I for agree. why a a you would be, thinks, yeah, yeah. but a person, even a person who thinks it's a dumb, dumb they're not reading it. You, if you read it, just the, even the description of the approach is not that kind of caricature at all. Right. No, what, what I'm saying though, is that he is self-consciously defending what you might think of as kind of a dumb, dumb method. Like, don't be so smart. Like, you know, this is not about like, this is not a calculus problem. This is not, uh, you know, deep theory. What you need to do is read the words in the statute and figure out what those words objectively mean. Now, we'll forget about for a second how you can do that or whether you can do that. But a reason to do that, and he lays out a very, you know, a, a very lengthy defense of this, right, is that um, what's most important here is democratic accountability, right? That the people uh, govern rather than elites. And for the people to govern, accountability needs to be centered on rulemakers, the people who make the rules, and in this case, if we're talking about statutes, it's Congress, right? And so to interpret what Congress does, we shouldn't try to fix what they do or kind of make it make sense in this kind of way that we can talk about in a second in terms of fit and justification or, 
or through the common law method. Instead, we should apply it as written, whatever that means. Set aside the methodological problems with that, and like how can, how do you do that? But if we can do that, and it and it's stupid, and in the sense that well, if we interpret it in this way according to our, this dictionary translation of this statute, uh, yeah, we're going to put away the skateboarder because I read that my definition of vehicle. And vehicle includes things which are, you know, mechanically move on wheels. Let's suppose it says that. I mean, we have, then we have the plane problem and other things. Maybe there are three different definitions of vehicle in the dictionary. We apply them all. Mm. So, so we just apply it. And yeah, the kid's got to go away for, <laughs> for six how, months. How about pay the ticket? Okay, pay the ticket. That's fine. But for all we know, though, the statute has mandatory jail time. Fair enough. For all we know, it does. Right. And if enough. we're textualists, we, you know, the fact that it's, the fact that there is a stiff penalty with it shouldn't deter us from ascribing mean, because it's irrelevant to the meaning of the liability creating phrase. And the contrast he relies on is the contrast between common law adjudication. Right. Uh, and uh, trying to enforce p- positive law, legislatively written positive law statutes. Um, and in that context, taking the statute as a work product of this other body yeah. uh, that's elected and you're not elected, that's the specific context in which he's writing, um, uh, you know, if the statute is to constrain, if this is an, an enterprise that's to be in some way recognizably distinct from the enterprise of simply giving a common law judge's best answer, right? What do you think is best f- to happen? Right. Um, this person was in the park disturbing people. They brought a suit. Make the other person stop disturbing me. Mm-hmm. What's the best answer in the common law right. approach? Right. Um, well, if if interpreting and applying a statute is to be recognizably distinct from that other activity, right? How should you do it? And the insight that uh, this that this the words of the statute are meant to constrain in some way to rule some things out and rule some things in. Um, seems sensible enough. Um, and, and his, re- I think the, which is why everyone thinks text is important. Well, but so, so there are a couple, I mean, there, there are radically different ways that you could do this. And, and one is his way, right? Which is to let's get out our dictionaries and preferably the dictionaries that were around at the time that the statute was passed and figure out how people who were receiving that work product, the people who elected those legislators would have interpreted that phrase uh, or, or that that bit of uh, statutory text yep. at that time, and if but if all we have is no vehicles it. in the park, no, I just want to get this point out. Right, the the reason to do that is because there needs to be accountability. So putting the kid away for six months is seems ridiculous. Right, go talk to the legislature. Yes, so so this is this is how democracy works. Right, you get democracy to work by enforcing the policy of the legislature of the legislature for good or for bad. Then the electorate can react and say, you idiots, why did you make skateboarding illegal in the park? Uh, we're going to vote you out. It shouldn't be courts which shape the rule right. in order to kind of uh, satiate the public appetite for, for justice. So a very different approach, as you point out, right, is the approach that judges use in the common law. These are, this is areas where, these are areas where the legislature has not acted and there is kind of residual authority in courts to make the rules, like torts and accidents and other things that we've talked about uh, yeah. in class. And so here, you might say, well, so we have this bit of text. What does it mean? Well, in an early case, right, we decided that it, it definitely included cars driving through the park. 
and we did it for the following reasons. They were very close in time, and maybe maybe the statute was passed after there was a bad accident in the park, and the legislature responded to that, and so that case did that. And then there was this case of of a, of a small child on on uh, skates, roller skates, and we decided that in that case that it was unlike the car example because it was not motorized. Yeah, right. So it didn't create the kind of noise and disturbance. It also didn't create the kind of risk of propelling a very heavy object at a very high speed. Then there was this other case where a person maybe rode a high-speed bicycle through the park and and injured somebody. And we decided in that case that it did fit within the definition of vehicle because the person was riding at high speed on a mechanical device which had wheels and presented the kind of danger that the uh, that that right. necessitated the statute in the first place. It was and more the gears, akin to early on cases. A motor were sort of a force multiplier, and so you can even sort of get into the, the you can analogize to the motor in the first case. And so now, when we get to this case of the of the skateboard, we look at all of those existing opinions interpreting Three. this phrase, and, yeah. and maybe there were others. Okay. and we say the common thread here is whether there is um, there, there's a transportation device, you know, within the control of a human being which has the potential for risk if not well managed, like the potential for like bodily injury and annoyance if not well managed, right? So in other words, there's something which is being piloted which might hurt people. I'm, I'm just trying to on the fly to think of like how you yeah. might synthesize a rule here. This is the common law method, right? Yeah. We, we look back at what we've done well, it's a and we try to give an explanation as applied to a statute. Exactly. Because it's still being constrained by the use of the word vehicle. The vehicle is a focus of our, the word vehicle and its meaning right. is, a fo- is a continuing focus of attention. And the explanations always have to be linked back to, tethered back to that effort right. of elaboration. And so this is the kind of the Church of the Holy Trinity method, although it didn't go into this nearly as much, um, that Scalia criticizes in this in this writing, right? He said you know, this idea of focusing on a purpose of the legislation and then reasoning in a common law way to achieve that purpose and looking back on that purpose, that's not the right way to do this. Just look at the text. Look at what they said to do and apply it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the problem? Well, I don't think Church of the Holy Trinity is, and I don't think he describes it as doing the sort of thing you were just doing with vehicles in the park no, with, they're, with they're, a car and a skateboard and roller skates and a bicycle, right? Church of the Holy Trinity is saying, yeah, it literally covers this, yeah, um, but we think that can't possibly be what they meant. It's a preacher after all. They, mm-hmm. they were talking about other laborers, and and they, <clears throat> yeah, right. So it's a very yeah. badly done. You you could say it's it, it's the critique is well, it's just exceptionally bad judging. And there's on an, anyone's yeah. theory of judging. Well, maybe. I mean, it, it is a case where, yeah, the statute says this. What do we? Why do we think they said that? Are there other things in the law which are? which which evoke which events a policy to be protective of churches or not protective and you know so we have to kind of fit all of our areas of law together like you could imagine it that way but it certainly it takes a more common law rational reasoning kind of approach like we're going to try to reason out the best outcome in this case using the statute as some input data but hardly the end of the matter there's this also this case Riggs against palmer are you familiar with this case yes so so this is the one where uh um someone kills uh, someone who, who can you inherit under the will of your murder victim? Yeah, would be a way to summarize. There you go. So this is why I have you. That's why I have you, Joe. Can so 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 if you're in someone's will and you murder them, can you still inherit? Are you somehow disinherited? And my my memory of Riggs against Palmer is that it holds that you cannot inherit. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, Even though there is nothing, you will find no statute. You, you'll find statutes on inheritance in in this jurisdiction. Right. You will find nothing 
though, that says specifically, but if. So, so even though the only reason we're asking this question is because you just killed the person, like you'll, you'll find nothing in the statutes which says, that, well, that's a reason why you wouldn't give the inheritance, right? So there's nothing right. there. So if, if the court is going to order the executor not to distribute assets from the estate to the murderer, it's not because of anything in any statutes. At least it's not because of any text in any statute. It's because of broader principles which affect the interpretation or, right. or somehow refract the meaning of that statute. Yeah, that it, and you could describe it as uh, an implication uh, that, of the statutory framework that when the statute says things like distribute the proceeds of the estate to the people named in the will, um, the, the, <laughs> it was on the assumption that they were not the decedent's murderer. And one way that a, a common law court would go through this, if there were no statutes, if it was all common law, they would certainly re- reach this conclusion. Correct. And they would do it by observing that in other areas of the law, this common thread of not profiting from a wrong that you do is there over and over and over again. So why would it not be here? Like if there's a principle in the law which explains so much of it, we would have to have some reason for not applying it in this case. Right. And there isn't one. And there isn't one. And so that principle, Quite although, the contrary. There's although every reason to apply the principle, that's here. right. <laughs> although it is coming up against a principle that the, that the testator, the people who write the will have authority to determine who takes from them. Right. So this right. principle about giving them authority is butting up against this principle about not butting, uh, is butting up against this principle about not profiting from your own wrong. Mm-hmm. We think that in this case, because of the fact that they probably didn't anticipate they were going to be murdered by this person, that the principle about not profiting from your own wrong weighs more heavily, right? And so even though we have a conflict of principles, the, the weight of not profiting from your own wrong means that, the, uh, means that there should be no distribution to the murderer. Right. Right? All right. So, and Scalia says that's wrong too. Like that's not the right way to do things, right? You text. And if, the, if, that is an, if that's an outlandish, outrageous result, the right answer is to change the statute. So, so um... I think the Tanner lecture is, is very interesting, and I think it's the um, it makes a lot of great points. I do think it doesn't grapple with what what makes the skateboard case hard. Yeah, um, it's not good in edge cases. He, it's also interesting too that he he describes as uh, and here's where I think he is um, he's he's not quite confronting what what makes things challenging as I perceive them to be is when he talks about the Smith case yeah. and this, using this, a firearm yeah. and like says, you know, if I'm using a cane, you wouldn't think I had hung the cane on my wall as a piece of this, art. This you is, would think this I would is, be This is the interpretation it, right? of a statute which makes it illegal to use a firearm in connection with a drug offense. Correct. And I believe the facts of Smith was that the, car, the gun was in the car. Uh, in the trunk of the car or something like no, that. Th- well, this been, is, there was another case involving that. There, there, there are a number of cases where one where they tra- where they the used glove box no, it's it's the one where they traded the gun for the drugs. Oh, right. And there's another one where they traded um, drugs for a gun, and they came out differently. So you <laughs> use the gun. The, the court said you use the gun when you have the gun, you possess it, and you trade it away for the drugs. You've used the gun, right? But you don't use the gun when you are receiving a gun in exchange for drugs. And do you use, I can't remember now what the facts of Smith are, is that you're using the gun if you have the gun with you when you engage yes. in a drug transaction. Even if Any you never brandish it or discharge it. I think that's the case. See, now you're making me wish I'd gone back and looked at it, but you're not using it when it's in the trunk of your car and no one ever sees it. Okay. 
Um, and you could even have an argument about whether you you had used it if it's in you know if it's behind your you know it's tucked in the back of your 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 um, your pants and and you don't take it out and no one knows it's there right right um, have did you use it or not you could have a discussion about whether and and so it's interesting in this lecture where he's describing textualism does he actually use the word textualism in the lecture I'm not sure what, yeah. what, what's interesting about it is he points to the the that case where the court holds the person had used it. He says, terrible decision. I dissent. And it's not a, not a close case, Mm -hmm. even though he thinks they got it wrong. And it's not, he, it is because he didn't follow what some would describe as the textualist method that he thought it was wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what, what I think is so intriguing about it. Hmm. This passage in the lecture. It, it's it's you have to take an approach to textualism if you're going to call it that. Uh, you have to take an approach to it that says you wouldn't simply look in a dictionary and see all the things a word could mean. Instead, you have to have a very good sense, pragmatic sense of common usage, uh, of um, the context in which the word or phrase is being used. Like what problem is it trying to tackle? Is this a criminal prohibition? Is it an effort to set up some kind of uh, form of relief in a civil case? Yeah, and in case? this case, I think, that, I think the idea is like we want to minimize the risk of violence in, in uh, drug transactions. And so we're going to like bump it up if someone has. So your example of having the, having the gun like, you know, in your back pocket or, or tucked in your in the pants in the back where people could obviously see there was a gun there. Like just the mere fact that you've got it with you raises this risk of violence with which we think Congress is probably concerned when it included this. And the question here as a, as, as an interpreter is like, do you care about that? Or are you just looking at this phrase use? How do people think of the word use is use a gun, a different kind of thing than using something else. And can we even answer that question without taking account of what Congress was trying to do here, what social problem there is. And I think what a textualist would say, or someone who describes themselves as a textualist, if I want to avoid your glare, Joe, mm. is, uh, uh, is, is they would say, no, you, you look at what the word use means, and maybe if use a gun has a, yeah. has a certain meaning to the public at that time, maybe that has a, a, a special meaning. So how but, should... but, but that, if that comes out in a way which is weird, um, which, you know, you know, it's, it's using a gun one way or another. It doesn't make any sense in terms of the purpose. Well, the right answer is for Congress to go back and be more specific about what it means by use a gun and maybe even specifically reference that purpose. And, and therefore, I think Scalia is not a textualist based on what you just described, because he himself denies that the Smith case came out the right way. Well, um, he, so, so I think yeah. he would say if the phrase is use a gun in the perpetration of this drug crime, right? And the evidence were, uh, it was a very windy day. Uh, the defendant had a gun in each pocket because he does not like it when his coat flaps around in the wind and the guns held down the coat in the pockets because they're heavy. Um, no one else knew they were there. He never touched them during the drug transaction. He never told anyone about them. They were just there as effectively weights mm-hmm. in his pockets. Could have been sand or stones as much as a gun, right? Scalia would say you shouldn't be convicted of that offense. A textualist would say you should. Yeah. Right? I, no. Because you were there having a drug transaction. Yeah. The gun was being used to hold down your coat while the transaction he, occurred. He, he would say textually that's not using in connection with. Okay. Because there's is not that? a connection. Is, it's, the, that, is the phrase that, in yeah, connection that's in the with statute. a drug offense? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's in the statute. 
So I think that's how he would deal with it, right? You got to use it in connection with. But I think your point is well taken. <laughs> okay, because- and so how do you know that in connection with is m- means that it doesn't cover having the guns in my pockets? Well, it's, I mean, you make a good point because if you, like, it's a very different drug transaction if you show up fully clothed or if you show up naked, right? And so <laughs> in some sense, the, clo- <laughs> the, some, the clothes are affecting the nature of the drug transaction, right? So, so everything is, you know, so in connection with is one of those words like reasonable, it's one of those phrases like reasonable or something else, which we talked from the very first, um, uh, where the, I guess the second day of, uh, of, uh, of class, um, we talked about like proximate causation, right? right. Is this like, pol- so policy is always there, right? It's always, you know, we're always being asked like, is this close enough or right. not close enough? And in connection with maybe one of those kinds of things. And, pr- and purpose, I suppose in that sense, and maybe it's just a synonym here, Purpose is always there too. And I guess what's frustrating, what has been frustrating to me as we've had this conversation this morning, and, I, and it's not frustration with you, it's with the topic. Well, it's not, and any, I don't it's not to, any more frustration than normal. That's what you mean. <laughs> and I don't mean to be a horse's ass about it, but I, but I, what I find challenging or frustrating about these conversations is, um, is, is that they seem to, to set out to separate people when they aren't separate. There's a lot of straw man setting up and knocking down in a lot of these conversations about interpretation. That's fair. Because everyone thinks text is important. Everyone thinks purpose is important. Everyone thinks consequence is important. They just, they, they use them to varying degrees depending on in, in given cases or classes of cases, the, the sort of the salience of particular considerations. And also most people have well, one or two bug, bug of bears <laughs> that, that they want to try to avoid. I think right. it's bugaboos or bugbears. Bugaboos yeah. um, or bugbears that they want to avoid. So they say, oh, I'm a textualist, meaning I don't like reading le- I don't like reading congressional committee reports when I'm trying to decide what to do with the statute. Yeah. Okay. Although I think, the I word think, textualism yeah. is definitely shorter than the sentence. Yeah. I don't like reading committee reports. People do differ, though, in what we'll talk about next time, I think, in terms of their what I call their level four theories, right, or their or their overarching theories for why why there's a court and why there's a legislature and what those are supposed to be doing right Definitely. and those do lead to you know so it may well be that your refusal to look at legislative history or your identification with a certain kind of textualism right. is driven by those higher order commitments and we yeah. see that here from Scalia but you can what, give an account of what is salient to you in in given cases or classes of cases and that account can include uh, what in that other reading you're referring to is these level four theories for sure i want to talk here though about um i, I want to read something that judge posner wrote in the i th- would you call it acerbic <laughs> <laughs> i would <laughs> um so posner is also like he, he's a um uh chicago school economist longtime judge long i think long associated with the uh, kind of more conservative law and economics movement which arose I don't know if you could say the 80s, but like it began to be judicialized in the 80s in yeah. a serious way. But it was, right? it was, I think it was fully going in the 70s. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But, 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 but ascendant in the 80s, yes, right? Um, really, its influence really started to grow. And, and Posner over time has kind of morphed into more of a pragmatist. And, and, and this is kind of reflective of this kind of softer edge on certainty. I, I don't want to describe that to him. But, but anyway, um, he, here we have two, Judges who both might have been described as conservative at one point, who are in a pitched, heated, not nice battle, would you say? <laughs> True. Um, he does not mince words, that's for sure. So 
So Posner says that, here's what he says, a legislature is thwarted when a judge refuses to apply its handiwork to an unforeseen situation that's encompassed by the statute's aim, but is not a good fit with its text. Ignoring the limitations of foresight, and also the fact that a statute is a collective product that often leaves many questions of interpretation to be answered by the courts because the legislatures can't agree on the answers, the textual originalist demands that the legislature think through myriad hypothetical scenarios and provide for all of them explicitly rather than rely on courts to be sensible. In this way, textualism hobbles legislation and thereby tilts towards quote-unquote small government and away from quote-unquote big government, which in modern America is a conservative preference. So I thought this is, you know, I think this is very well written and I learned a lot from this debate, both Mm -hmm. from the Tanner lectures, which were, you know, predated this exchange by a lot, right? By 20 years. Yeah, and this is a book review of something Scalia's written with with Brian Garner, which is a, a kind of, it's a, it's a longer explication of what textualism might mean and some of its methods. Right. Um, but what, what did, what did you take from that? I mean, does, does that seem from right? That yeah. Yeah. What does that, it seems like a key passage to me because it, it's a, it's an, it's an description, not of necessarily a motive, but of effect, right? That right. to prefer textualism is to prefer a kind of conservatism because basically you're, you're increasing the cost of legislation. You're forcing legislatures not to you know, you can't just dash off a note saying, go get things for the party. Right. Like you've got to do the thing which is much more specific. I think it is very key and I think it's it is um a counterpoint in its way to Judge Gorsuch's Jeremiah against Chevron. Um because it, the predicate of of that piece of writing, a very different kind of writing, it's a it's a concurring opinion in a case. Um a, one of the predicates of that that he offers in the in the middle of it is um he he sort of opposes law and liberty, mm-hmm. right? Law is the opposite of liberty, right? Um, and and this could be this passage could be taken to to say the opposite. Um, that that law is part of, indeed, it might even be constitutive of liberty. Uh, there's a project of getting stuff done, right? And every, multiple institutions are participating in that project. And you rather, can rather than to, seeing rather than seeing every instance of getting stuff done collectively as an insult on uh, on liberty, right? Correct. It might actually liberty, yeah. be a ground of liberty that right. it is only it, it is what makes a human life worth living possible. Mm. So, <laughs> so in that project, that collaborative project of different institutions contributing different things to it, it would be odd for one of them to try to thwart the other. Do you have in mind this example that we talked about in the context of another class? Like, what does it mean to be free to drive? Like is, you know, is every, the fact that there's a speed limit, that there's a red light, there all these restrictions, you could look at them all as on, as, as insults to your liberty to drive. But in fact, without them, you would not have the actual freedom to drive yeah, from, would from here to anywhere around. else. Yeah, everyone yeah. would crash around. So there's this, you know, sometimes this mutual restraint, which we learned about back with Garrett Hardin, right? It's mutual, mm-hmm. mutual restraint is the thing that can actually allow us to accomplish our objectives. Do you have that in mind when you say that? Um, I didn't have that specific example in mind, but I, but I, but it was interesting because I read these two things. Basically, I read the Gorsuch opinion and the and the Posner thing in one sitting. Mm-hmm. The Scalia Tanner lecture thing was sandwiched in between. Yeah. Um. And it and it struck me very much in the moment of reading it that they were that they really were taking so, sort of dramatically different and and you might even say directly opposing, although maybe not quite not directly. Um. Uh, but but quite quite different positions on the that sort of key question speaking of sandwiches is a burrito a sandwich 
depends why you're asking. So, so we're not going to talk. I, I've decided we're not going to talk about um, in this in this podcast episode about the Sunstein piece. We'll, I'll leave that for the students. I think it's really instructive and interesting. And, it really and, is. And it's, and I think it's a bridge to what what I wrote that I'm asking them to read for next time as well. But mm-hmm. um, but like maybe it would be good to end this up just with our conversation about whether a burrito is a sandwich. Because this is Posner goes after this in this piece, and it's very much like this is a hot dog a sandwich, which has now become a meme and all that, you know. Right. And so, what do you think? Is a burrito a sandwich? <laughs> I, I'm gonna stick by the answer I gave a moment ago, which is it depends on why you're asking. That's see, this is the problem. You and I don't disagree about this stuff. I'd okay. like, I'd like to think it's because why is that a problem? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think it's because I've convinced you. But, we disagree about fact, a lot of things. We do, but but not about this. We, if if we had a so if we were just kind of hanging out, and someone at the table says, "Is a burrito a sandwich?" For sport, we would take probably different positions on this, right? We would just say, you know, this is like sitting around saying, you know, I don't know, like what are some typical things? Like, are we all brains and bats? And, mm, right, you know, right, this, right. This kind of stuff, like you know, where you can there's a sport in asking these questions, yes. right? So that kind of pervades the culture of is a hot dog a sandwich mm-hmm. where people can argue. And it's, it's precisely because the stakes are so low that the arguments can be so vicious, right? <laughs> but in law, like is a skateboard a vehicle it might be determinative of someone's liberty or at least, you know, pocketbook. Yeah. Um, and is a, a bur- is a burrito a sandwich can be, can, can have meaning. So if we're just asking you know, if someone, if, if you, if you told someone to go out and buy you a sandwich and they came back with a burrito, mm. would you be upset? No. Because you like burritos or because you think they were faithful? But well, both. And I'd be, my, my measure of upsetness would be directly proportional to how well the person knew me because if they know me well, they're going to know that I would per- enjoy eating a burrito perfectly well. Yeah. I mean, and might even have thought to say, had I been a little bit more focused on the favor i was asking them bring me a sandwich including a burrito <laughs> or a burrito or not not including yeah i mean because it can be a sandwich with a burrito sandwiched inside that would be weird but <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, a, but a burrito uh but if you ask them to get you a burrito and they brought back like a chicken sandwich or something i'd be, I'd be upset i'd be upset yeah about that. and it's sort of a general and specific thing yeah that's part of what's going that's on that's part of what's going on yeah um but but if there were if there were um a Let's suppose there was some food, there was some outbreak, you know, some, some foodborne illness in a, in a town, you know, and there were, you know, um, in a bunch of delis, you know how they have those counters with the lights and they have their sandwiches up front and everything. And a bunch of people got sick. Mm. A town passes a statute saying that, you know, all sandwiches must be kept at a certain temperature or may not be kept for more than so many minutes before you sell them. Mm -hmm. Right. And someone has these burritos rolled up in there. Right. And, um, and an enforcement action is brought because they're keeping the burritos well past the well past the time exactly limit in the in the ordinance. And now the question is: Are they liable or guilty under this statute? And I think that just looks really different than sitting around in a dorm room asking whether a burrito is a sandwich in the abstract, right? Because so the you know the textualist would just look at the definition of sandwich, you know, and as Posner you know, looks in here and looks at the, you know, says it's two pieces of bread and other thing. You know, I, there are different definitions. I've looked right. it up too, and you can find different definitions. Under some of those, maybe burritos a sandwich under, you know, kind of depends on the dictionary you look at. And, what, yeah. and, and of course, a dictionary is just adding more words and those words yeah. you could look up. Um, but in the context of this hypothetical town with this hypothetical problem, right? To me, this is a somewhat easy question, right? Because 
that the burrito, they're definitely covered. The burrito has the characteristics of the of exactly the that thing caused the that caused the ordinance to exist. This is, right. But that is a purposivist approach. It is indeed. And everyone cares about purposes. Hmm. Even judges who call themselves textualists. Oh boy. All right, so the, and everyone cares about text. Even judges who call themselves purposivist. Are we going to end it there? I guess. There, this is a very controversial area of law, obviously. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people disagree vehemently, not just about statutory, but about constitutional interpretation, contract interpretation. All these yeah. different areas of interpretation are, are consequential. And then you add to the level, everyone wants to fight about terminology. Mm. Well, it's important to lay out the terminology so people will know what it means <laughs> it when they see it, right? That's all we're trying know, to do here. I know. But we will continue this delightful argument in class. I think we'll continue it forever. <laughs> <laughs> you and I certainly will. Okay.